welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. All right, everyone, listen up. If you can hear my voice, I want you to make a wish. Is it for that car you've always wanted? Is it to spend even more time at home? This is your chance. Wait, there's a catch. We are traveling back in time to the year 1984. And no, I don't mean the George Orwell book. Wonder Woman 1984, at best, has received mixed reviews. And today, to help us make sense of this empty spectacle, is professor of English at the University of Redlands, Heather King. Hello. And returning guest, the critic at large at Vox, Emily Vanderwerf. Hi, it's good to be here. Just so everyone is aware, uh, Natalie has had this movie on our to-do list, on our calendar, for I think over a year since when this show began. (laughs) She has been waiting eagerly with bated breath for this movie to come out through all of the delays and the pushbacks and everything, especially with the HBO Max distribution deal. But sadly, the movie seemed to just kind of end up messy, I found at least. Uh, Why do you and you think so many other people think the movie came out this way? (laughs) So disappointing. Emily has written about this already, and so it's. I definitely want to hear what she has to say about it more as well. But it occurred to me today as I was thinking about this, I think part of it is perhaps inevitable for the superhero films focused on the female characters because we've waited so long for them and there's such a backlog of stories to tell and fans to service in a way that they just haven't had as long to tell the stories and they're trying to catch up in a way. And I, I feel like the deck's kind of stacked against them to some extent. I think there is a real tendency within superhero cinema right now to try to cram as much into a single movie as possible. Honestly, <laughs> the more I hear about Wonder Woman 1984 and the production process, it really does seem to me like Patty Jenkins sort of made the movie she wanted to make. Um, so I don't want to be like, oh, the studio made her do this. The studio made her do that. But there certainly is an element of, you know, a lot of stuff in this movie that ends up feeling like it doesn't belong there is, is stuff that, um, probably would have worked in a TV season version of this story and doesn't quite work in a film version of this story. In particular, I'm thinking of the Chris Pine uh, narrative cul-de-sac. I get what it's doing there. I get, I get why they included that element. I get what it's supposed to mean, but it it's, does such a poor job of dealing with the metaphysics of it all that you get really thrown by the thought of like, oh, Chris Pine is back. Whereas I think if it had just been a more uh, traditional, suddenly he's back from the dead and who knows how, like it might have worked better, but it's still, it detracts from the main storyline and sort of sidelines Diana Prince within her own movie in a way that ultimately doesn't help it. Yeah, my my big beef with, I mean, I love Chris Pine, don't get me wrong, but my big beef with that was like, okay, so they, they brought him back, but they're going to bring him back in someone else's body and then never address that. And then... And then like, like you said, this like cul-de-sac effect where you're like, wow, this kind of served no purpose. And I was even saying like, I, th- I put this on Twitter earlier. I was like, honestly, like we could have gotten a little more creative. If we were going to bring K- Chris Pine back. Why don't we, why don't we bring him back as like something that's not human or just like, <laughs> like an animal or a cat or like at least put in like comic relief at that point. To me, the Chris Pine storyline is, as I mean, I, as much as I love the actor and think he's gorgeous, um, <laughs> really serves no purpose. Um, <laughs> but I guess 
like Emily said, there are quite a few scenes in this movie where after the, after the fact, I was like, well, that didn't really tie into anything. And one of those, one of those parts was the flashback in the beginning. What, what were we supposed to get out of that flashback? I don't know. Like I, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's one of the better scenes in the movie. So I like enjoyed seeing the, the world of Themyscira again. And I, you know, one of my favorite um, podcasts is Blank Check with Griffin and David. It's a it's a movie centric podcast. And on that podcast, uh, Griffin says this feels like a setup for they're going to do a thing about where Diana's wish ends up being being able to go back to Themyscira, basically. Oh, Something I would be so like there that. for that movie. And oh, that, yeah, like that would have been better, but also, you know, it, it would have. Um, it would have sidelined her in a way where I think that they might have um, felt they needed more, more clear singular stakes, which is where the Chris Pine idea came from. That said, there's a long tradition of in the second movie in a superhero series, the superhero loses their powers and that's what they're doing here. But I think there is so much more power to, Oh, she goes back to Themyscira, this thing she's always wanted to do, but, the only way to save this world she's come to care about is to leave, to renounce her wish, which will push her back into the real world. And just to get out ahead of a criticism a lot of people have about this movie that I don't share, I love that it's about a wishing stone. That's so appropriately, so appropriately silly for a movie like this. I just had a great time with that aspect. It's a very fun sort of uh, MacGuffin that they use there that I think it, it seems lazy, but in a superhero movie, you need a certain layer of uh, of silliness. And they, they lean into the campiness at times, which I think makes it fun in a way that I, I think the, the Spider-Man movies was sort of fun in that way. Even in Spider-Man 3 with that horrible dance sequence that oh my was, God. Uh, was camp pushed to the extreme there. Um <laughs> It used uh, the sort of genre to its to its advantage there, and I think it 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 tries to do that. But another thing that I don't don't see how they utilize to its full extent was the the setting. It's it's Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, and other than the sort of stakes being that there are nuclear weapons involved at the end. Um, and some, you know, set dressing and things like that, like some of the costumes and, and the, the sort of runway montage that they do with, with Chris Pine, which I think <laughs> we will get into uh, in, 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 in another time. I don't feel like they played with the setting to the full extent. Like they have a scene with the president. Was that supposed to be Reagan? I'm not entirely sure. It was, it was, it could be, but if so, it was very sort of hands off. Um, there, there wasn't that like really great eighties soundtrack as prominent in the movie. Mm-hmm. I felt like I didn't, I, you can see them playing with some of the tropes, like the sort of like, nerdy girl gets hot makeover but it's not playing with it in a way that kind of subverts it it's kind of just like oh this is a movie set in the 80s we'll throw this in there and it doesn't even seem like it's because it's in the 80s it just seems like that's that's just the trope they used so i was wondering what did you think about the the use or underuse of the setting and what it could have done with it well and i wonder if part of the reason the president is such 
an almost Reagan, but not clearly, is also just because DC has always uh, steered away from being in the real world. Like if it was Marvel, that would have been Reagan and it would have looked more like Reagan. So I think that was just, even though they've admitted they're in DC, they're still trying to pretend it's (laughs) Metropolis or something (laughs) right? (laughs) by not having the real president. But when you guys were talking about Chris Pine earlier and wishing he'd come back as something else. It struck me that could have been one way to really lean into the 1984 setting. And I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this, but have him come back as Max Headroom or something. Like the very beginnings of that kind of virtual experience were there. So why not really play around with that more? And that would also take it a little bit out of the boring love story sort of thing. I was much more interested in the love story between Cheetah and Diana than I was in Chris Pine to some extent. Um, But I think the whole working woman trying to have it all is depressingly accurate for the 80s. Um, There were so many movies in the 80s that were about that, that it it felt like it was trying to do that storyline to a certain extent, but without the meta level that would be necessary to make it not just frustrating as a movie. I've had a number of friends who watched it and were like, really, we're still telling this story. Um, So I think there needed to be a a level of distance from that story rather than so that it came across as a museum piece rather than just being presented as a narrative that women are still struggling with. I think there are two levels to this conversation about this movie being set in the eighties. One of which is what I'd call the stranger things eighties. The, With the mall uh, scene. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the sort of trappings and, and fashion and storytelling tropes because uh, uh, somebody mentioned uh, that the Chris Pine storyline is basically an eighties body swap comedy. And once they said that, I was like, Oh, okay. That makes more sense to me. I get why that's doing here. So th- I think on that level, the movie doesn't succeed. The sort of stranger things version of the eighties where you're just trying to hit those tropes and make Gen X people be like, Oh, I was a kid once. Um, <laughs> but I think on the level of a more, an attempt to capture the ethos of the 80s and sort of the political, socio-political realm of the 80s, I think it is better. I don't think it succeeds. Its understanding of, for instance, the Middle East conflict is very shallow. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, again, and, and as, as, as Heather pointed out, the depiction of you know gender relations in the 80s is also like very shallow but i think the idea of the wishing stone the idea of being able to have anything you want without consequence and then realizing the consequences later is sort of an excellent metaphor for the ways that uh the 1980s the way that people thought about the economy in the 1980s the ways in which the um baby boomers. I don't want to reduce this to generational warfare because I don't believe in that, but it's it's useful shorthand. The ways in which baby boomers sort of were like, I'm going to have everything I want and not particularly worry about, you know, what's to come next. Like you could read the wishing stone as a metaphor for climate change if you really wanted to. I think this is a smart, this is almost a smart movie about that. It kind of blinks at the last second, but that scene where Max Lord, um, Pedro Pascal gives one of my favorite performances in the movie, that scene where he's like on the, on TV being like, everybody just wish for whatever you want. You know, there is a very interesting critique of eighties economic theory in that, that said as a trans person, 
uh, if I got my one wish, uh, I would probably not renounce that wish. And, um, that's, that's a trickier thing to deal with is that we only see people who make bad wishes. We only see people who are making wishes from a position of privilege. It is a lot different to think about what would a wish look like if it's from someone who is in a traditionally disadvantaged background or who has a thing that they very clearly could wish for that might genuinely make at least their world a better place. And like, I think that's a failing of the movie's imagination. I think this brings up something that uh, Heather had mentioned to us before we started talking that I, I was sort of curious about, which is the idea and the depiction of cultures of wish fulfillment, which you were just sort of talking about, Emily. And it sort of plays on this idea and really builds up that specifically the United States, but really the whole world uh, in the 1980s, because he's sort of broadcasting it all over the world at that point, uh, Pedro Pascal's character, um, is is based on wish fulfillment. It's There's a bit of hubris involved and, and, and greed, but it, it very much with the sort of blanket uh, sort of casting, you know, you only get those selfish, bad wishes. You don't get people wishing for generous or good things, which is, which is, I think, really sad for the most part. Um, and it chooses to portray, you know, you have the US, like we said, but you also have Rome and Carthage as these civilizations based on wish fulfillment and that it ultimately brought their downfall. Um, but then you also have, like, Kush and the Indus Valley and the Mayans and basically it it, it basically be, gets to the point where it sounds like they're saying innovation and building up civilization creates or is driven by a, a, I think tonally a, a selfish wish fulfillment highly individualistic culture why do you think that it sort of gets painted this way and why use those examples instead of just kind of sticking with i, I you could say a classical example like rome carthage and the u.s emily's point about the representation of the economics in the movie um i think the the way in which I can express my agreement most strongly is to say that when I finished watching Wonder Woman 1984, Pedro Pascal's monologues had made me want to rewatch Wall Street. Yes. <laughs> the, you know, the emblematic 80s movie. And I mean, thinking about having Locke in the name of your podcast, um, the fact that the wish fulfillment is flying in the face of the idea that labor is part of what gives you property in something. So it's that wishing for just having without doing the work, which is where I think the flashback at the beginning ties in in a more meaningful way. Um, I would absolutely show up for a movie that was nothing but the island. I, <laughs> and I think a lot of people <laughs> felt that way after the first movie too. So there's a bit of fan servicing going on with that long sequence at the beginning. Um, but I also think Diana's lesson that she takes from that and the voiceover says sometimes the lessons you learn you don't even realize you're learning at the time um, is that just wanting it is not enough that you have to put in the work and the time and the patience to get it so that at her foundation she understands achievement differently than someone who thinks just wishing for it could make it happen um, but I think there's something I don't think it's well first of all it strikes me that the whole idea of wishing is a fairly childlike thing, you know, blowing out your birthday candles or wishing upon a star. So there's something about maturity going on with that as well, which is interesting. Um, 
but the idea that the cultures that are being presented as having this wish fulfillment component to them also were cultures that had gotten to levels of luxury um, for the most part. And so if there's something about once you have excess in a society, if that affects how people think about things so that it's a, a secondary feature, it's not the, the wish fulfillment isn't baked in, it's a, a product of other structures within the culture. I also think like going back to what Emily had said earlier, like the wishes we do see, even if we don't like see like negating the countries that it's affected or the um, civilizations it's affected in the past, the we see like an English woman that wishes all Irish people would be sent back to Ireland, which just seemed kind of odd. Um, <laughs> then you get like, and then that man wishes that the woman that <laughs> wanted to banish him dies. Like uh, even like on a very on a very micro level, it seems like all the wishes are negative and like ostensibly the people that made those two wishes weren't necessarily like they, they could have been at a place of luxury, but they weren't necessarily like in need of a wish. Um, I also think that it's just, I don't know, just see, it seems incredibly pessimistic that everyone that wished for something, it was all like very negative or like more, 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 which then got me thinking. And I didn't notice this until after the film that like, what a critique on like consumerism in a way Mm -hmm. that like the last, um, especially like the last monologue that um, Wonder Woman gives when she has her rope around um, his leg and he's in the like broadcasting Star Wars, like fancy machine. (laughs) Um, And um, she gives this whole speech about like, you're not the only one who suffered. You're not the only one who wants more, who wants them back. Like this, this idea of more, whether it's more time or, and then it got me thinking about consumerism and like almost this being a critique on like, like the human desire to always have more. Um, And that's, I mean, that's like the basis of wishes. They're all, they're wishing for more of X. I mean, the president wished for more missiles and, ways to destroy other people but i think it was just it got it got me thinking about consumerism more so after i watched it when i was watching it i i didn't give the uh producers enough credit that that might be what they're trying to get at um but did but anyone else see that kind of like slightly hinted at towards the end i mean yeah i think um I think it's endemic to this premise. I think endemic to the idea of we're telling a story about having three wishes is that you always want more wishes. Like wish stories are inherently about greed and 80s stories are often inherently about greed. And I think that's where the two things overlap because, you know, if you look at a uniting element in the um, death of most civilizations, most empires, there is this element of like, greed or selfishness or, you know, uh, uh, wanton envy, that sort of thing that is common in a lot of them, not all of them. You know, I'm not enough of a scholar of world history to say that, but you, there are so many civilizations that are toppled by, in essence, people stop being able to think of themselves as a society and start thinking of themselves as a collection of individuals who just happen to exist within a society. And like, I think what this movie is trying to grapple with is, is that inevitable? Can it be reversed? Is there a way to um, build a society that is not 
susceptible to that. But I think the fact that we've seen that happen across economic orders, across social orders, across like systems of government suggests there is this inherent thing in human nature that turns some of us toward greed and then turns more of us toward greed. And then it's very hard to snap that cycle, which is, I do think why the Themyscira um, prologue perhaps works is because that is in essence, a society that is not built around those sorts of values. And that's what makes Diana's speech about you're not the only one a reasonably powerful emotional moment in the film because she's introducing that Themyscirian sense of equality and unity um, that Lord has been working against by giving everybody individual wishes. The consumerism, I think, also gets flagged when all of the assistants wish for Porsches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. <laughs> I think that one of the other things that's that's interesting about this is that it is – the first movie was also about a thing that sort of makes societies collapse. Like uh, famously, I think it was Gail Simone who said that you bring in Wonder Woman if you want to stop a war, whereas like you bring in Batman if you need to stop the bad guy and you need to you bring in Superman to like stop the end of the world. Like sort of <laughs> uh, Wonder Woman's whole deal is that she tries to let us see our better natures. And that first movie is about it's set in World War One, but come on, it's a World War Two movie. Like it yeah. is set in World War Two. <laughs> Definitely. <II. laughs> but like that movie is about okay, well, how do we avert armed conflict? How do we avert, you know, this potentially society destroying thing? This movie is about how do we avert this potentially society destroying thing? I don't know what you know what time period the next movie will be set in. I think it's very smart to do uh, a series of movies set in different time periods with a character who is immortal. Um, but, you know, I think I think that if they're going to close out this trilogy in a meaningful way, they need to find a different thing that tends to, you know, cause civilizations to fall and, like, tackle that question. It's an interesting idea for a superhero trilogy, even if this second movie doesn't really work. I have not done this, but now I want to watch her speech to Ares at the end of the first movie with her speech to the teleprompter at the end of this one, because... Emily, I'm really intrigued by what you're saying. And I think Wonder Woman's answer to both crises is more love and compassion. And that that's part of what she does with the speech in uh, the second movie is to remind people to of their better natures, as you say, and to care about one another and to have that sense of community, um, which is part of why it's so distressing that there's not more time given to the relationship between Barbara and Diana. Um, whether we want to queer that relationship or not, but just that potential female bond um, that could have done a lot more. I mean, we'd be remiss not to talk about uh, the villains in this film since it is a superhero movie. And I mean, if you compare it to other superhero movies that have memorable villains and have villains that still stand out in people's minds. So like we we have this ongoing discussion about Batman within our team and we've covered it here on the show about who was who was the more memorable, memorable villain, the Joker, Bane. Um, and to me, if you try to think of that question here since there it, it is really a dual villain story i don't see either of these villains as all that memorable i mean i love Kristen wig but i just don't think they did enough to develop her story other than it being like nerdy girl becomes hot and is now a super villain what did you guys think of the dual villain scenario here and do you think it worked i 
like both of these characters in isolation. I don't know that they work together. I don't think the special effects on Sheeta are very good. I like the idea of uh, the Cheetah character, especially if you played it up a little bit more explicitly queer, sort of as as Heather mentioned. They're already like 75% of the way there. I don't yeah. know why. They didn't yeah. just go the rest of the way and be like, oh yeah, Barbara's into Diana and Diana's like oblivious, like have, have one of those sort of famous uh, tropes. Outside of the fact that like then you have a situation that plays into like horrible uh, stereotypes of lesbians throughout fiction sure, throughout history right. that said we're already almost all of the way there so like you're not really getting anything from not making it explicit um that said uh i think the the max lord character is honestly maybe the best in the movie like i think they handle a lot of his they handle a lot of his story with a lot of nuance and depth in a way i was not really expecting so i think that um these are both interesting characters they both have interesting arcs um and diana ends up sidelined and that's not a that's not a huge problem in some of these movies it's a similar thing happens in like batman returns which is another first superhero sequel but yeah it's it's very difficult to get you reinvested in diana's journey when she just sort of leaves the movie for a while Emily, I agreed with your point in your piece in Vox about how much there was that needed more time. And I thought the Max Lord character was fascinating because he is caught in one version of a um, sort of domestic versus public aspiration. And Diana is caught in another and the resolutions that they come to reverse the normal gender resolution for that. And I thought that was kind of interesting that Lord is rehabilitated and returned to the domestic role of father, whereas Diana has to give up the potentially domestic role of romantic partner and return to being the hero. Um, so that was kind of fun. Um, but I really felt like, again, it was just too crowded to have Lord and Cheetah there and that Cheetah was the one that ended up really getting uh, short shrift because not only it's the tired nerdy girl gets hot story. She's all that, whatever. Um, but it also her final nastiness is not even her own doing because during, I had missed this the first time through, but during the televangelist moment that Lord has at the end, he says, give her your rage, give her your prowess. So he's sort of supercharged her as a villain. So it's not even her choice to to break that bad at the end. She's been put in that position by Max Lord. And the second time through that actually kind of made me angry on Barbara's behalf. Yeah. And I guess my, my big question too, with Cheetah was the, the whole line about like, it was a little confusing what she was giving up. So like, I guess she was, cause in my eyes, okay. Like uh, Wonder Woman's giving up uh, Steve and giving up Chris Pine, the uh, character. And then, to me, Cheetah slash Barbara was giving up like her humanity, I guess. So I guess like that, her, what she was giving up was a little bit more intangible than like what everyone else seemed to be giving up. And I guess that that just looked like a little bit of a stretch to me. And I, I didn't mind like the returning to fatherhood story of Max Lord, though I don't. It, to me, it was very predictable once his son was introduced because like. It was like, oh, his son introduced, and like I can see that the only purpose that the son is going to 
this son is going to have is to remind him of like his humanity or remind him of like being being a father to his son and like being someone that his son would look up to. So I guess that was more so just predictable. Not that not that that's a bad thing, but at the same time, like I like I said earlier, neither of these villains strike me as like all that all that memorable in like the grand scheme of superhero movies. <laughs> Right. Well, and there are so many films now that are about fixing the dad that that's yeah. a really, really tired trope by now. Well, it's also interesting if you compare that to like Diana doesn't know her like father's story. Um, and then the fact that they choose like fatherhood for him to return to yeah. is another another interesting like uh, thing to consider. But still, I don't I don't necessarily think that's something that could be central to like the next movie so to speak there is this this arc in the comics that my wife adores that i could not tell you which are issues it's in so you know don't quote me on <laughs> the thing i'm about to get wrong but uh, it's something where diana fights zeus and like it is like he's either her dad or implied to be her dad. And like, it is this big culmination of things. I would be very surprised if they don't figure out a way to like do that in, in the third film or something akin to that. Um, I had a point somewhere. Oh yeah. The, the thing about, Oh, okay. He needs to be a better dad. I agree. That's super tired. Um, it's like, we heard all of the criticisms, which were quite, good criticisms of the arcs that were like, can a woman have a family and a job? And then we're like, yeah. the problem with that is not that that story is tired. It's that we need to apply it to men. And then like applying it to men was interesting for a while, but that story's tired because we've told it so many times. Like there are other ways to tell a story about the unique pressures that are put on people who are in high positions of power then, but then they don't hug their kid. And isn't that sad? <laughs> It felt somewhat unbalanced that we get all of the backstory of Max Lord with those flashbacks to his abusive childhood. Um, and then we don't really know anything about where Barbara came from. Um, and I just, I, I think because the, I know Max Lord was in the previews, but I had gotten so fixated on Cheetah being in it that I, I, didn't fully realize before watching the movie that it was going to be a two villain affair. I thought it was just going to be cheetah. So I was kind of curious. We've discussed that this movie was, you know, pretty messy and had a lot of different plot lines that either went in circles or um, didn't really have a purpose. If you were to pick one of the plot lines in the, in the movie and actually build it out more, which line would you choose? Oh gosh. Um, I think that a movie that was just built around differing approaches to dealing with gender imbalances in terms of power, in terms of men taking on women filtered through eighties movie tropes, it probably would have remained cheesy, but it would have not felt like it stranded both Diana and Barbara in kind of, you know, different uh, different versions of a story that, um, you know, could have had some real power to it. Uh, that's not really like a single, a singular line or a singular moment, but I'm thinking a lot about that scene where Barbara attacks the man outside, uh, and when she's starting to realize her power and we're meant to read it as the, her final act of villainy. But within the context of the film, it doesn't seem that bad compared to a lot of the other stuff that's happening. She's just like, 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 
beat up a, a person who's catcalling her. It is a pretty classic power reversal fantasy. Like to actually dig into the implications of that, the movie needed more real estate and that it doesn't, I think kind of ends up hamstringing it. Absolutely. I feel like I've already tipped my hand that uh, I would prioritize the Barbara and Diana story. Just find out more about Barbara's backstory than I was busy in college, which is the only line we really get explaining her past at all. This is a movie I would want to see. It is not a movie anyone would ever make. I think it would be interesting if this movie took place in like a vague version of the afterlife. And so like it's just an hour of Chris Pine walking around having deep philosophical conversations with the great thinkers from history. And then he's suddenly <laughs> like ripped into a Wonder Woman movie. And we see that part of the movie from his perspective. And then he goes back and like we just have more philosophical conversations. Wouldn't that be a wonderful film? So it's like soul... <laughs> The movie, the Disney movie Soul meets Wonder Woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And Chris Pine comes back as a cat. <laughs> but not Why a cheetah, because that would be too confusing. <laughs> but it also struck me, the flashback we get of Asteria in the Golden Armor, she's able to stand up to hordes of men. I mean, that scene shows all these guys just wailing on the armor, and it seems fine. So the fact that Cheetah is able to make such inroads on it also felt like something that needed to be developed more. Like how is she more powerful than the Spartan army? Um, and what are the implications yeah. of that? Yeah. And I also, well, the interesting thing about her flying, uh, like we were saying too, is that she flew right after Chris Pine was like, well, I've already been gone. And <laughs> he was a pilot. So then I was like, oh, that's like a cute little connection that like now she flies. And <laughs> but then again, I was like, I was like, this isn't all that important. Other than that scene was really cool. Like uh, when she lassoed the lightning and she like the graphics of her in the sky and such was much uh they did a much better job with that than they did with the whole Cheetah and Wonder Woman fight scene where Cheetah's drowning. And it just looked like a bad, ver I mean, it looked like the Cats movie. <laughs> I was digging her Cheetara vibes, though. I gotta say, it was like, it, for a movie set in the 80s, I'm very much digging that they kind of leaned into that aesthetic, which I, right. I, I liked a lot of. Yeah, maybe, maybe we're just scarred from all the bad press that the Cats movie got. <laughs> right, right. But, yeah, but Natalie, I think you're, Natalie, I think you're picking up on something really interesting with the idea that she lets Steve Trevor go, but manages to keep him with her because she says earlier that planes were what always reminded her of him, that he was always with her because she could see the planes flying overhead. And she thinks through his monologue or his comment about what flying is like as she tests it out. So there's a way in which she's internalized him in her present existence as well, um, that obviously is supposed to be her sort of self-reintegration before she goes into the final showdown. Um, but I think it it is plausible. Yeah. And also, I don't know if you guys picked it up, but uh, speaking of old uh, Wonder Woman, Linda Carter was actually in this film. Um, and I actually wouldn't have picked up on it. I was watching, uh, watching the movie with my mom who picked up on it because it's in the, in the post credit scene. Um, there, the woman that's like walking through that you're assuming it, cause you're, you're getting the back of her and she's wearing a, a blue, like cape, like shawl. And, um, 
you you're like in anticipation thinking it's uh gal gadot and then she turns around and speaks to uh one of the people in the market and it's it's linda carter which i thought was cool also linda carter looks great for her she age does. but <laughs> she also so in the flashback when uh, Diana is showing Steve what the golden armor had been for the eyes of the woman in the armor. That's Linda Carter too. I would lay oh. money. The, oh, those blue I, didn't, eyes. I didn't realize that. So the person that was like being Asteria in the flashback. Yeah. yeah Cause that's oh. who she's supposed to be when we see her at the end. Um, so that she has been in the world as well, quietly going around being a low key superhero, saving the little girl at the fair um, and uses the same line that, Diana had to Barbara about, oh, it's all in the weight. It's very easy um, downplaying her abilities. Yeah, that, I think that was a cute little nod. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. So, Heather, Emily, uh, Natalie, what else have you been enjoying? TV, I don't have anything particularly cool for because somehow my entire family has become obsessed with MasterChef and we have been working our way through <laughs> seasons of MasterChef. <laughs> so now I'm very self-conscious when I make dinner every night about whether it's plated well or not. <laughs> we have, uh, my sons are 14 and 17 and so we have lots of funny like, mom, this is really you on a plate moments. Um, <laughs> But I have been devouring audiobooks, and my recent fling is, I'm going to butcher the name, but uh, Chimeanda Arechi, uh, who wrote Americana and That Thing Around Your Neck. Um, just fantastic novels uh, that are looking at experiences across the U.S. and in Nigeria, and these really um, well rendered lives that have just been fantastic to uh, explore and sink into as narratives. I will uh, point to the new show on PBS, uh, the new adaptation of All Creatures Great and Small. It is a lovely, soothing show about a nice boy who goes to the countryside in the 1930s and helps heal some nice animals because he's a veterinarian. <laughs> and there are like stakes, but the stakes are always like, is the calf going to be born? Is the dog going to be better? <laughs> It is really the perfect antidote for these times. Um, I struggle sometimes with low conflict stuff, but this has just the right amount of conflict while also being fundamentally about people who are trying to be like, do good work and be good to each other. And it's very British if you like that sort of thing. Um, I'm also, <laughs> I'm also reading the book, The Transition Baby by Tori Peters. It is one of the first, uh, novels from a major publishing house by a trans woman author. And it is, uh, fantastic beyond my rooting interest in the cause. Um, she has crafted a really smart book about a uh, trans woman, her ex, who is a detransitioned trans woman, once again, living as a cis man and, um, the woman that, uh, he unexpectedly gets pregnant and then sort of how they form this weird ad hoc family unit. Um, uh, I can't wait to see the Netflix miniseries <laughs> just to tie it into things we could watch. <laughs> right. Sure. <laughs> so I did watch death of 2020. It was hilarious. Uh, will not be something we talk about on pop and lock. Um, but it's the, it's the new, uh, yeah, it's new. It's a new docu documentary. And I put that in quotes on Netflix. Cause it's like also a comedy because all of the experts again, in quotes that come on, 
to talk throughout the documentary are all like actors. So they take film from this past year from the news and then they intersplice it with like these interviews of these experts. And it's absolutely hilarious. Um, that I watched, I've, I've watched multiple times now. Um, and then the other thing I reluctantly am rewatching the Lord of the Rings for the show. Um, and I am now through the first one. I have two more to go. Um, this is the first time I'm rewatching them. So I am just, you know, reminded of how lengthy and just how much fun they are. <laughs> and I mean that in complete sarcasm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it for me. And other, and on the book front, I, am reading The Turn of the Key by Ruth Ware. Um, not my favorite book by her. So I'll have to I'll have to come up with some more books soon, though. I am not ashamed to admit, though I probably should be ashamed to admit that I have recently began devouring the blacklist on Netflix. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it is not good if you do not enjoy making fun of and calling out all of your wild, very easy to guess predictions for network thriller dramas. I don't recommend it. But if you like James Spader, or really if you just like Robert California from The Office, um, then you might have a good time watching this show. Um I, I am firmly in the camp of Robert California is an alter ego, a cover for Raymond Reddington that allows him to launder his money. And if you've seen either show, you might be aware of how easily those two line up. I also have recently just rediscovered one of my favorite sort of very easy, easy watching shows, which is Creature Comforts. Uh, and I usually tend to, and I started with Creature Comforts America, which uh, is a stop motion claymation series where they interviewed all of these people (laughs) about uh like normal everyday topics um and then they animate uh animals to match up with their voices um and sort of go with them and they're so lifelike and uh expressive that it it really is it's great. If you like watching things like Christopher Guest movies um, and that sort of dry vein of humor, I think it'll be something that you really enjoy. But the animation is sort of in that Wallace and Gromit style. So if you like that, you might enjoy it as well. And anytime it's animals talking, I, I'm <laughs> firmly in support. I'm in the release the original Sonic cut camp as well. Um, just because those teeth are terrifying. Um I also have been watching a lot of Japanese vending machine videos on YouTube because what? it's fascinating. Natalie, it's great. It, it'll put you to sleep. It's the best thing to do when you want to go to sleep. Okay. They have the best, most interesting vending machines. Anything you want in Japan, you can get it in a vending machine. If you go to the YouTube account Dancing Bacons, this person travels all over uh, Malaysia and Singapore and Japan there's no talking, so you don't have to worry about them doing any sort of, you know, grading YouTube voice. They just go to vending machines, buy things, and they eat them, and they tell you about them, and it's oh, great. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> that is so stupid. It's great. If we got something wrong about Wonder Woman 1984 and you think it's actually a very good movie, please let us know on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at pop and lock pod that's pop 
the letter N, Locke, with an E, like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Pop and Lock is a project of libertarianism.org, produced by me, Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.